that downtown area down to the harbor, and we're, we're seeing the city in a very different way in that way, right? Now we're actually down on the street and seeing it in more detail. So if you will, expositional preaching is walking the streets of a city, right? It's seeing things right there on ground level. But you can see the city in a different way by, by zooming over it. And what I want to do today is kind of zoom over the Bible, if you will, and look at just one interesting little theme in the Bible. And it's the theme of the cherubim. You've heard of those strange creatures, the cherubim. We're going to follow them through the Bible and see, we'll see what they speak to us. So we'll start at the beginning then in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you take out your Bible, if you'd like to follow along, we'll start right at the end of Genesis chapter 3. That is where these strange cherubim make their first appearance. So Genesis chapter 3, you know what's happened so far. God has created mankind. Adam and Eve have chosen to rebel against God and their sin. God has told them what the consequences to their sin will be, right? The curse that will fall upon the man and fall upon the woman and fall upon the serpent, all the players in the story. Then we get to verse 22. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Right, so as we trace this theme, we begin then in a garden, in a, a sanctuary, in this place of communion between God and man. Right? In six days, God has formed the heavens and the earth. Beginning with nothing, he's called time and space and matter into being. He's crafted the whole universe, right? From the, the tiniest grains of sand all the way to the, the huge stars in the skies above. Just six days. And he set aside in all this expanse and all this universe. He set aside just one really small little planet, and on that planet, just one tiny little area, and he said, right there, in all the universe, right there, in that tiny little garden, on that tiny little blue dot in a huge sky, I will be specially present. I will dwell there in a unique way. It's called the Garden of Eden. And here in this garden, in this little garden, God places the crown of his creation, the final part of his creation. There's all these other creatures that God has made, all these other things that God has fashioned. But this one will be special. This one will be the crown. This one will be set apart. This one and one alone is made in God's image. So God forms this man out of the dust of the earth and he, he breathes life into him. Here we are in this, this perfect world, this perfect garden, this perfect God who's made this perfect man. There's, there's no sin. There's no death in all this world. This man enjoys communion, fellowship with God. Right? This garden is where God dwells in a special way, but it's not just where God is, it's where God communes, where God meets with man. They walk and they talk together, creature and creator. They find true joy, true communion 
in one another. They're face to face, God and man, enjoying this true relationship, this love, this fellowship with one another. God gives this man a name. He calls him Adam. And he gives him a mandate, a call to action. He says, this world is for you to enjoy. It's my world, but I'm charging you to care for it. I want you to love it. I want you to tend to it. And I want you to do this for me. I've created you out of love for me. I want you to do this for my sake. God's kind. God's gracious. So he gives this man a helper. He creates a woman to labor alongside, and to the two of them, he gives another task. I want you to fill this earth with people. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, do it all, all for the glory of God. Now, in all the world that God has made, in all of creation that he's fashioned, there's just one thing, just one little thing that God chooses to hold back from man. He says to man, all of the world is yours. There are hundreds of trillions of stars in the world, a hundred thousand million just right here in the Milky Way. They're all for you. Enjoy them. 20,000 species of fish in the ocean. They're yours. Enjoy them. They're for you. There are 400 billion trees on earth. They're all for you, all except one. Just one little tree in all the universe. There's just one thing that God holds back from man, and it's a single tree. So here in the middle of the Garden of Eden, there are two very interesting trees. Each of these trees represents something different. Each of them represents a different reality. Adam and the woman, they're free to eat from the one tree, but forbidden to eat from the other. To eat of the one tree, the tree of life it's called, that represents submission. That represents obedience. That represents love. To eat of the other tree. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That represents disobedience. That represents rebellion. That represents independence from God. So Adam and his wife, Adam and Eve, they have this choice before them every day, right? They they get up in the morning and there are these two trees. And they have the choice. Will we follow God or will we rebel? It's so simple, right? These trees are their test, their test of obedience, their test of love, of submission. The one tree is love for God. The other tree is love of self. The one tree is living for the glory of God. The other tree is living for the glory of self. It's that simple. So here are Adam and Eve in this garden. In the middle of God's perfect creation, they know and understand how this world works. Do what you want with the animals. Do what you want with the plants. Do what you want with the planets. Just don't eat the fruit of that one tree. Simple, right? Should have been simple. But we learn that this this cunning serpent, he enters that garden, and he manages to convince these people to, to go astray. He convinces them that this God of theirs, this creator of theirs, he's holding something back from them. He's holding back something they ought to have, holding back something they deserve to have. This God who's given them all the universe is stingy because he's holding back the fruit of one little tree. Take and eat, he says, and you'll be like God. 
You'll have the one thing in the world that you're lacking, but that is the one thing you need. And almost before he knows it, the man is deceived. He believes a lie. He wants to be like God. He wants to have knowledge that is not his to have. He knows all about goodness, right? He already knows everything there is to know about goodness. It's there for him. But suddenly he decides he wants to know about evil as well. He wants to explore evil. And so he eats the fruit of that tree. And in a moment, in the blink of an eye, everything changes. Suddenly the eyes of this man and woman are opened and they see good and evil. But the trick is on them. Because what they hadn't expected is that they would now be evil. Right? Evil isn't just out there. It's not just beyond them. Suddenly evil is within them. It's welling up from inside them. They're now polluted by sin. They don't just see evil. They are evil. A man does what people do when they've done something wrong. When they know that they're guilty, he runs and he tries to hide in his shame. He tries to cover himself from the gaze of God. But God is a loving father, so he lovingly seeks him out. He finds Adam. And he does just what any father does. He explains there must be consequences. There must be some kind of a consequence for what you've done, for this act of treason. He says, Adam, you will have to, to toil. For all of your life, you will toil by the sweat of your brow. And after a lifetime of backbreaking work, you will return to the ground you were taken from. You will die. From dust you, will, you were taken to dust you will return. God acts in judgment, men must die. But God also acts in mercy. And I wonder if we see this when we read this account of what God does in consequence for the sin. Man has become like God in knowing good and evil, but he's become entirely unlike God in being evil, right? Man sinned by eating that fruit of the tree of, knowledge of, uh, the, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What were it to happen? if he were to remain in the garden. Right? If man could stay there in the garden with that tree of life, well, now he could take the fruit of the tree of life and eat it. He now, this sinful being, would have life forever, life that would never end. And so he would live on and on forever as an evil, twisted being, forever getting more evil, more demented, more wrapped up in his sinfulness. It's a horrifying thought that he would sin forever and ever and ever. So God thinks about this and God delivers his decision. He says, now lest man reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. He doesn't finish the sentence. It's not often that God doesn't finish a sentence. He just leaves it hanging. But this is a father here. This is a father thinking of his son. And imagining what it would be like for that son to become more and more evil, more and more demented and twisted forever and ever. That thought is more than he can bear. Thought is more than any loving father can bear. So he breaks off his sentence and he acts. He acts in mercy by sending man away from the tree. By sending man away from that source of never-ending life. Man is to find life. Man is to, to regain 
what he once had. He'll have to find it somewhere else. That tree is no longer available to him. Man is driven out of the garden. He can no longer be in this place where he can reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever as a sinful being. So you see, God drives man out of the garden in mercy to keep man from a fate that would be worse than death. But there is more than mercy here. There's mercy, but there's more. There's also justice. If God is, if God is to be just, he must separate himself from man. Right? Because God is holy. He's holy. He can no longer walk and talk and be with a being who's polluted by sin. A sinful being must not be here where God is, in this garden, this place of God's special presence. And so we read, God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All right, so here we are. Here's the tree of life still standing in the garden in the place where God dwells. But there's an entrance to that garden. Man was shoved through that entrance, and now at that entrance there was placed a flaming sword clutched in the hand of the cherubim. See, it was man who was meant to tend this garden. Right? It was man who was to care for this place where God dwells. But now God has had to, to hand that to somebody else. God has had to hand that task to the cherubim. And so right here is where we start to pick up the trail of these creatures. What are cherubim? They've probably gotten a little bit of a bad rap in our culture. When we think of cherubs, we think of cute, pudgy little angels, right? The kind of thing that you hang from a mobile over your child's crib at night, and, you know, they hang there to guard your child or something like that. They, you've seen them. They're little fat-winged creatures. They wear a little diaper, and they... <laughs> They look all cute and harmless. According to the Bible, the cherubim are slightly different. The cherubim are warriors. In fact, they're terrifying warriors. They're, they're, they're the guardians of the, the things of God. The Bible describes them as having, you know, the general appearance of a man, but then they've got the face of a lion or the face of an eagle, something like that. Whatever they are, they are fierce. Whatever they are, they are predators. They have these huge wings and can fly. They're, they're creatures God created specifically to protect, to fight, to destroy, to kill if necessary. Fact is, you don't want to meet a cherubim. And, and if you took a real cherubim and hung it above your child's crib, that would not be doing any favors and getting your child to sleep. So here's the garden and the tree of life the tree that Adam and Eve and all their children were meant to eat of and live. But now between Adam and Eve and that tree are the cherubim and the flaming sword. No man can approach God. No human being can approach God and take the fruit and eat and live forever. Instead, man must die. Outside of the garden, he must die he must return to the dust from, what, from which he was taken because no man could face those cherubim and live. 
You see the point of it. You see how unholy Adam and Eve have become, that between them and God, there must be now this kind of creature, this kind of creature to guard the presence of God from the pollution of man. God has sealed himself off. He sealed himself away from man. And you see that this is you. It's not just these people who lived thousands of years ago, Adam and Eve. It's you. Right? You and your sin are cut off from God. You are barred from the presence of God. You were meant to live right there in relation with Him, face to face, living forever in joy and fellowship with God. But your sin has barred the way because you too have sinned against God. It's not just them, it's you. You've committed treason against God. You've declared independence from God. You have defied God. You are a sinner. You can't approach God any more than Adam and Eve could. So all that remains for you then is to live out your days until death swallows you up. Your body will return to the dust, but your soul, your soul will live on, eternally separated from God. This is what will happen because this is what you deserve. You will get exactly what you deserve unless, unless somehow, Someone, somewhere is willing to give you what you don't deserve, right? Which is what we refer to as grace, favor that is given even though it is not merited. Favor, blessings that are given even though they haven't been earned. Where could we get what we don't deserve? Where could we receive grace? How could we find the kind of grace that would spare us from the justice we deserve? Well, that's the path that leads away from the Garden of Eden. It's a path we can follow by just following the cherubim through the Bible, because this is not the only place we read about them. So let's follow them for just a few minutes here and see where they lead us. We next meet the cherubim in the wilderness, the wilderness between Egypt and and the promised land. God has called a people to himself. He's called a man named Abraham to be the father of many nations, to be the founder of his chosen people. These people have grown and multiplied. They've been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They become these wilderness wanderers, waiting for God to lead them into the land that he has promised. And here in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land, God speaks to a man named Moses. And God tells Moses that the people must build a tabernacle, a portable place of worship. They can worship God, then pull it apart and take it with them as they go from place to place all the way until the promised land. If you were to stand back and look at this tabernacle, you'd see that it has this outer courtyard where all of God's people are allowed to go. They go there to make their sacrifices, to be made right with God. They go here to to worship, to seek forgiveness. So man comes with a spotless, unblemished lamb or goat, and he lays his hand upon it, and it's killed. Its blood runs out. And all these sacrifices going on all the time remind the people that sin requires death. It requires blood. There must be satisfaction for sin. You would see that there's an enclosed inner place within the tabernacle, the courtyard, and then this inner place called the holy place, and only the priests are allowed to go there. And even though you would never see it, you would know it exists, that inside the holy place is the most holy place, 
a place where only one man can go, and he can go there just once a year. And this right here, the, the most holy place, the center of the tabernacle, is the center of their worship. Now between the holy place and the most holy place is a curtain. This big, thick curtain made of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. This curtain that's meant to keep everyone away from the the most holy place, to close them off. If you were to stand and to look at that curtain, you would see that woven into it is the image of the cherubim. God decreed that on that curtain there must be the image of the cherubim between God and the people, between God's presence in the most holy place and the people outside, again, are the cherubim. This constant reminder of the state of warfare between God and man. So they're on the curtains. They declare they are still the guardians. They must still keep unholy beings out of God's holy presence. The way is still barred. So these Israelites, they make their sacrifices. They perform what God tells them to do. But always they know God is hidden behind that curtain. He's hidden behind the cherubim, shut off, away from sinners. But there are more of these cherubim. In the very center of the most holy place stands an ark, a gold box, right? You're familiar with it? If you were to look at that box, you would see that mounted on the top of this ark, the Ark of the Covenant, are two more cherubim, two more guardians. They stretch out their wings over the top of the ark. Their wingtips meet in the middle over an area called the mercy seat. It's right here from the mercy seat under the wings of the cherubim that the Lord speaks to Moses, right? So in the Old Testament, we read about God who is enthroned between the cherubim, right? These holy creatures are meant to destroy any unholy thing that comes in to the presence of God, right? So this is where the Ark of the Covenant rests, the Ark in which God dwells between the cherubim. It is what makes the most holy place Most holy, the presence of God. God is there. He lives there. He dwells there. Right? God had first dwelled in the Garden of Eden. But now God dwells here in the tabernacle, here at the ark, here between the cherubim. Man can no longer be in God's garden near that tree of life. But God has graciously decided he will still dwell in the middle of his people in this most holy place place. Do you see the grace of God here that he wouldn't turn his back on his people? He continued to be there with them. He'll continue to be with the people he loves. Well, this is grace. But even while he's there, the people cannot come too near. They cannot approach that ark. They cannot even touch it. In fact, they cannot even see it. When God dwells upon that ark, they cannot see it because it's hidden in the Holy of Holies, hidden behind the curtains, out of view, guarded by the cherubim. So for generation after generation, God's people would see those heavy curtains. They'd see the image of the cherubim and know God has barred the way. I am shut off from God. I am shut off from eternal life. Will I ever be able to go through that curtain? Surely they were asking that. Would I ever be able to go into the presence of God? Will that way to God ever be opened up? For 500 years, that tabernacle stood. And they would look 
And they would wonder, and they would long, long to be with God. Generations rise and fall. Centuries go by. God's people finally capture the land. They drive out all the inhabitants. The Lord gives them a time of peace, and King Solomon builds a temple. Right? The tabernacle was wonderful, but that was for wanderers. Now a temple is for people who have come home, a people who have come into their own land. And like the tabernacle, this temple has an outer court, and it has a holy place where only the priests can go, and it has a most holy place. And again, if you were to stand in the holy place looking toward the most holy place, you would see a curtain, a curtain that some people say is as thick as a man's hand. And this curtain divides God from man. And once again, woven onto the curtain is the image of the cherubim. Once again, those fierce warriors, they're, they're on this veil, the, cover, the color of blood. They're guarding the way to God. And again, there's more, even more of them this time. Inside the most holy place are two massive cherubim. They dominate the entire room. They're covered in gold. Each one is 15 feet high. Each one has a huge 15-foot wingspan. They stand side by side within the most holy place, wingtip to wingtip with the Ark of the Covenant resting underneath the tips of their wings. Safe, sheltered there. And they declare the exact same thing. You are an unholy people. We, the cherubim, will strike you down if you dare, dare to approach this holy God. There's just one exception, just one. The high priest has a special job. He makes these very careful preparations, and once a year, on the Day of Atonement, he's able to go into the most holy place. The sinful priest approaches God on behalf of the sinful people and seeks God's favor for another year. Just that one day, he walks past the guardians, right? He walks through the curtain. And he walks under the wings of those giant cherubim. Seven times he uses his finger to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And he walks back out and the curtain is closed for another year. The way remains barred. The cherubim are still there year after year after year. This, this blood sacrifice satisfies God, but just for another 365 days. Then it has to be repeated again. For another year, God extends favor to his people. He puts aside their sin. He regards them as pure, but only for another year. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a permanent way. Yet still those cherubim stand there. They're on the ark. They're above the ark. They're before the ark. The message is clear. The cherubim are a picture, a, a lesson. God is holy. You are not. You may not approach God. The way is shut. Well, a thousand years, a thousand years after that first temple is built, a man named Jesus is born. And there's a temple still standing while he walks on the earth. You, you read about him visiting that temple when he's a boy. You read about him cleansing that temple during the years of his ministry when he drives the money changers out of what he calls his father's house. Then on the last night of his life, he's dragged to a hill that's not too far from this temple, and there he's nailed to a cross. I want to talk about this for a minute. 
Throughout his ministry, Jesus begins to reveal that he is man and God. He begins to reveal that just as Adam had represented all of us into his fall into sin, Jesus will be the second great representative of humanity. He will be the second Adam. So the creator of all the universe is born into this world as a little baby. He grows up, he matures to a man, and he reveals that he will do something that only he can do. He will exchange our sinfulness for his goodness. He will give what we need to be accepted by God. See, the fact is, no sinful person can ever make himself right with God. We're all sinful. We cannot make ourselves good. We cannot make ourselves acceptable before God. We need, to be someone, we need someone to be good for us and to give us goodness. We can't do it ourselves. We can't earn it ourselves. It has to be a gift. We know when we really think, when we really search our hearts, we understand that goodness can't come from within. It must come from outside. It must be a gift given to us. Well, this Jesus is good. He's completely good, completely without sin. He doesn't sin, not even once. And he declares that when he dies, he will face God's wrath against sin for everyone who would ever want to be reconciled to God. This sinless man will face the curse of sin on our behalf. And so he's nailed to a cross. And as he hangs on that cross, that place of judgment, that place of, of cursing, he is cursed by God. Right? He's not suffering for his own sin like those criminals beside him. He had no sin. So he's suffering for the sin of others. People he loves. People like Adam and Eve and Abraham and Moses and you and me. People who cannot help ourselves. So as he hangs there, God pours out all of his wrath on Jesus. And Jesus hangs there until his work is done, until God's wrath is emptied. It's complete. And now, now Jesus' work is done. He breathes his last. He gives up his spirit. And in the moment he dies, something incredible happens. In that final moment, he cries out, it is finished. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then as his heart beats for the last time, as he goes to be with his father, something happens to that curtain. Something happens to those cherubim. The curtain in the temple is torn in two. That heavy curtain is ripped apart in the death of Jesus. It's obsolete. It's dead. It's gone. It's unnecessary. God tears that curtain in two, declaring that Christ has succeeded. He has done all that is necessary. See, the curtain isn't torn from bottom to top by the hand of man. It's torn from top to bottom by the hand of God. So do you see it? The cherubim are gone. The flaming sword is gone. They're all just ripped apart, stitch by stitch. They're, they're gone. We no longer have to face the cherubim. We no longer have to approach God through these fierce guardians. There's no longer a flaming sword warning us away, barring the way to God. There's no longer a curtain. The way has been opened. But wait, there's still something. There's still someone 
between us and God. It's not a cherubim now, it's, it's a man. Between us and God now stands a man. It's, it's the man, Jesus, who is alive. And he stands between us and God, and he calls to us. This is not a cherubim warning us away, but a friend inviting us to come. This isn't a cherubim with a sword in his hands, but a man with nail scars on his hands. And he calls to us. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come. Come to the Father through me. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, come. He says, come to me and find peace. Come to me and find rest. Come to me and find forgiveness. Come to me and find life. See, man can now approach God. So the man who wrote the letter to the Hebrews says it like this. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Today, right now, you can come before God and not with terror and trembling, but with confidence and with assurance. Why? Because of what Christ did. Because of what Christ accomplished. So here is hope. Here is hope for those who are tired, those who are worn out, people who are sick of sin, people who have no hope left. Jesus says, come, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He calls on you to come. Have you taken hold of the grace that he offers? That's hope for men and women. That's hope for boys and girls. Christ calls you to come. He calls you right now. He calls you to draw near. He calls you to walk past the torn curtain and into life. He calls you to put your faith in him, to believe that he truly has opened up the way, to put all your trust and all your confidence in him. This is grace. This is is being given what you could not do for yourself, being given what you do not deserve. It is a gracious gift. So sinner, come. Come through Christ. Come today. Come boldly. And Christian, you've already come. So know this message and believe this message. Protect this message and share this message. Protect it with your life. This is worth living for. This is worth dying for. This is worth everything. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you graciously found a way to open the way to yourself. That way was shut rightly, justly, truly. It was shut to us. We deserve to be shut off from life. We thank you that you made a way, a true and living way, past that curtain. It's my prayer that each one of us would, in faith, walk past that curtain, that each one of us would embrace Jesus Christ, that we would put our faith in him, come to him in repentance and faith, and receive life. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for giving us what we so badly needed but did not deserve. Amen.